It's good to be with you this evening. It's good to be here in Cincy. I am grateful uh, to have this opportunity to bring God's word to you this evening. Uh, when I was first uh, told what my assignment would be, that the theme that I would be assigned would be beauty, uh, I went to my wife and I said, babe, guess what theme they, uh, they gave me? She's like, what? I said, beauty. <laughs> and she said, yeah, that's because you need work. I said, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, I seriously thought that they would invite someone more beautiful like Sugar Ray Cortez or uh, the, the Mr. Moderator, uh, beautiful men who bring a beautiful word, beautiful game. Uh, no, seriously, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, anytime I get to bring God's word to God's people, I, I'm reminded of the words of that old gospel song. Uh, it's a good reminder. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can change anybody. And so with that in mind, let's, let's turn to God's word this evening in the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first three verses. Jonah chapter 1. Beginning with verse 1. This is God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Father, we're grateful to be gathered as your children this evening. Grateful that you have not left us alone, but you have spoken. And with that word, you have dispelled the darkness of our souls. You have dispelled the darkness in this world, and even now you're pushing back that darkness, driving us toward a new day, an altogether new world. And so we pray that that hope of glory would back up into our present right now as we sit under the preaching of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would be the true preacher in here this evening, and that you would get your word through to your people for your glory. We ask for your help in this time, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. About two years ago, during Christmas time, my family plotted on me. Because they bought me this device called a Fitbit. Now, some of y'all know what a Fitbit is. But for those of you who don't know what a Fitbit is, I'm going to break it down to you. A Fitbit is this little watch device that you put on, and it monitors the steps that you take. It's, it's given to you in order to help you to, to calculate how active you are. And the Fitbit comes programmed with the standard of the American Heart Association that says that you have to walk 10,000 steps a day in order to have a healthy heart. So I take this Fitbit. I didn't ask for nobody's Fitbit. But I took this Fitbit, I put this Fitbit on. And day one, I saw this was going to be a problem. Because I'm a pastor, as many of you are. And, 
And I noticed that at the end of the day, I kept getting these notifications. I kept getting these encouragements that said, keep going, Russ. You're only 9,000 steps away from your goal. (laughs) I said, give me a break. I'm a pastor. I live under condemnation all the time, you know. The notifications kept coming up. They were letting me know how short I was falling of the standard of having a healthy heart. They kept reminding me that that what I was doing with my life wasn't measuring up. It would not result in health. So I figured something out. I figured out that you could actually go into the program and you could change the target goal. And so I moved it from 10,000 steps down to 1,000 steps. So every day I was hearing, go, Russ, you're killing it. You're, you're five steps over your goal, you know? Now I started getting the notifications, and I had the nerve to go to my wife and say, hey, babe, 30 days of meeting my step goal." But I was just fooling myself because I knew good and well that I was not really doing what was required in order to have a healthy heart. Now, we may not have asked for it, but the Lord has given us a standard of beautiful orthodoxy, a standard of cross-cultural love that is required in order for us to have a healthy heart. He has given us his standard in his word. And every time we turn to his word, we get the notifications, the encouragements to rise up into the goal of this beautiful love, to rise up into the goal of this beautiful orthodoxy that is expressed in this love for neighbor, this love for those in the world who are broken and needy, this love for those who do not come from where we come from, Love for those who might speak with an accent that we don't have and who have grown up with customs and values that we didn't share. But far too often what we do is we go in and we change the program. We lever up our theology in order to lower the standard, to to diminish the call and the requirements so that we only have to love those who love us back in order to hit the goal. We only have to love those who are like us in order to to meet the requirements. But God wants to press us beyond that. He wants to mature us in love. He wants to grow us up in faith, hope, and love. And tonight, we're going to turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to turn to the book of Jonah for help this evening. Because Jonah is the patron saint of all those who, who have a, a theology that, that doesn't actually result in beauty. Jonah is, is the patron saint of all those who believe all the right things and behave in all the wrong ways. Jonah is sort of a, a father in the faith, as you will, for all of those who know what it's like to have a big head and a small heart. And so we're going to turn to this figurehead, and and we're going to follow this story. And what I'm going to propose to you is this. The story of Jonah, I think if you wanted to put a tagline on it, you could call it ugly orthodoxy. That's the story of Jonah. It's a story 
of ugly orthodoxy. But here's the deal. If you look at this story of ugly orthodoxy and then you just turn this gem, just a twist, it will lead you to beautiful orthodoxy. And so I want to get after our text through two points tonight. We're going to look at beauty betrayed and beauty displayed. Alliteration forever. Forever. You can take the man out of the black church, but you can't take the black church out of the man. All right? All right, y'all. We're going to have to make this thing happen tonight. Beauty betrayed and beauty displayed. Let's look at our first point. Beauty betrayed. Now listen, all of you theologues out here, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Jonah. You're familiar with the narrative of this man who receives the word from the Lord and he does everything in his power to do everything contrary to that word, that he turns his life away from God's calling, but God reclaims him. You're familiar with this story, but what I would like to do this evening is I want us to look at the way in which the narrator levies his criticism on Jonah. And this criticism gets beneath the skin for us. It's a hypodermic criticism that is meant to help us to see something of God's vision for his people. I want us to consider the critique. And I want it to lead us to see what it is that God is after in our lives. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord came to this man named Jonah, son of Amittai. And if you look through the Bible for Jonah, son of Amittai, he shows up in one other place, and that is 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And and Jonah was doing his ministry during the golden age of the prophets in the 8th century. He prophesied, uh, just like all the other prophets, within the land of Israel to the people of Israel. And any time any of these prophets got a word for the nations... They were able to to offer that word from within the boundary of Israel. But with Jonah, we get something different. We get something new. Because the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and it is a calling to cross borders. It's a calling to cross borders. It's a calling to cross a religious border. It's a calling to cross a cultural border. It's a calling to cross a geographical border. It's a calling to cross an ethnic border. What we have in the ugly orthodoxy of Jonah is not just running from the word of the Lord. It is specifically running from a cross-cultural calling. It's running from a cross-cultural ministry that the Lord has laid upon him as a requirement. And right from the beginning... Just based upon the fact that it is God who initiated this thing, and it's God who works with this prophet in order to get him on the right track, what we see in comparison is the heart of God versus the heart of the prophet. That the prophet does not share God's heart. The preacher does not share God's heart. He's got sermons, but, but his heart isn't aligned with the Lord's heart. 
He's done ministry, and he's been at ministry for a while. He, he has a standard of orthodoxy, but his heart is not a heart that is shared with the heart of God. What we see in Jonah is that his concern stopped at the borders of his own country. His interest, his love stopped at the borders of his own people group. What we see is that Jonah's love for his country got in the way of his love for those people. I'm not going to step on too many toes tonight. His love for his country squeezed out his love. There was no room for loving the other. He could not fit those people in because his love for his his group was too great. But there are some other things that pop up in this Second Kings context. There are some other things we need to recognize. Jonah is mentioned in this record of King Jeroboam. Not blot their name out. That's what it says in the text. In fact, the Lord allows the border of Israel to be restored. He restores their protection and their security. And he's gracious to them. That's what we see in that, that context. So, with this in mind, what we could appreciate is this, that it's, it's very likely that Jonah was not just a, a recognized figure at the time among Israelites, but he was actually a celebrated figure because the way that God did this work was through the king and the prophet. He was a celebrated figure. He was known. People said, yes, that's our prophet because he brought the good word of restoration to the people, that God was going to do good to them. You know what it's like when you're the messenger that brings good news. Everyone celebrates you. Now, now you're you're ready to appreciate what this call in Jonah chapter 1 was like for Jonah. It was like his whole world was about to crumble because you can feel the emotional weight that God is calling him to leave the place where it's all love where it's all acceptance, where his people get him and value him and embrace him. And God is sending him to Nineveh, to those people. It was a country, a people, a city that was known for violence, a place that was known for its evil, a hostile nation. He could lose it all. Jonah is thinking, God, do you know who these people are? God, do you know what these people have done? Do you know what they will do to me? Go to Nineveh. God knows it all. And yet the call remains. So Jonah runs. Jonah runs because... He despises those people. He runs because his heart is small. He runs because he thinks that if he gets out of there, God will just have to use someone else. God will have to use someone who's interested in that cross-cultural stuff. You know, you know, like those guys, that's their thing. They're interested. It's their hobby. So nice. Love what you guys are doing. So good. You, you know, good for you. God will just have to use someone who's interested in this kind of Ninevite ministry. He runs because he wants 
grace for His people and karma for those people. Remember the context. Israel was jacked up. They were sinning. They were broken. They were rebels. But God is merciful to them. And Jonah wants grace for Israel, but he wants karma for Nineveh. They should get what's coming to them. That may sound familiar to some. That may be familiar to some of us. We, you know, we may know something about wanting grace for us and our kind and karma for those people. Jonah runs because God's mission does not suit him. He betrays the beauty that God had planned for his people ever since the beginning with Abraham. That Abraham was going to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. This was, this was not plan B. Plan B is C, plan A. To bless the nations through the people of God. But here's the thing we have to remember. Throughout all of this, Jonah was orthodox. Jonah was orthodox. Jonah recited the Shema. Jonah went to worship every Sunday. Jonah read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. <laughs> Jonah was confessional. <laughs> but here's the thing, and this is important. Jonah used his orthodoxy as a replacement for love, not as an inducement to love. He used his orthodoxy as a replacement for love. God, how could you blame me? Look how spectacular my theology is. But let me tell you something. You can have orthodoxy and your life be just as ugly as Jonah's was. Don't you see it? The narrator is trying to get you hip to the fact that you can have an orthodoxy that is so ugly that it's, it's, not, it's not really anything remotely attractive. You know, if, if your orthodoxy is like Jonah's, it's not very beautiful and it's actually not very orthodox. And that's the challenge of this text. Do you see the critique Jonah is running from his cross-cultural calling. He betrays the beauty of God's vision for his people. And it's on this very point that the narrator mocks Jonah. And he's mocking Jonah because you know why? Because the first audience, Israel, he's trying to draw them in. Because they're supposed to see in Jonah themselves. They're supposed to look at this prophet and see their representative. That they too have failed. That they too have an ugly orthodoxy. And look at the rest of the story, y'all. It begins with running from the cross-cultural call. Then all of a sudden, he winds up on a boat surrounded by this, by this multi-ethnic group of sailors. And what is Jonah doing? He's asleep. He's sleeping. And then one of these, these pagans calls out to him and says, Hey, what are you doing? Get up and use your faith for public good. He's, be 
basically telling Jonah, all of that stuff you, you might believe about your God is worthless if you're not using it for people like us. It's the silent rebuke of the narrator. And then from this point, Jonah is thrown overboard. He has a death and resurrection moment. But he does not want anyone else to experience that death and resurrection moment. He wants it all for himself. He's calling out when he's at the bottom of the, of the sea. And what he does is he gets on the other side and he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. And he is absolutely enraged when he sees the entire society of Nineveh being turned right side up because of the message that he reluctantly shared. And he says, I'm mad, I'm mad. God says, why are you mad? And he says, because I knew that you were a gracious God. What kind of foolishness is that? If I was God, I'd have been like, come here, Jonah. <laughs> you know, what is wrong with you? And, it, and the book ends in a question. And it ends in a question because the invitation to you and I is, what are you going to do with this beautiful cross-cultural call of God? What are you going to do with it? Are you too going to run? Are you going to be found asleep in the boat? Are you going to celebrate your own death and resurrection and then withhold it from those people? What we see in God's call to Jonah is that God's desire is to send his people to those people so that those people will become his people. You see that? God does not zap and microwave the world. He uses means, and the church is his favorite means to bring his means of grace to make those people into his people. But guess what? We too know what it's like to betray beauty, don't we? This is a story of the betrayal of beauty on the face of it. But if you look more deeply, you will see that it's actually also the story of beauty displayed. That brings us to our second point. Look. The ugly orthodoxy of the prophet Jonah leaves us longing, doesn't it? It leaves us longing and wanting and pining and desiring for another prophet, for a better prophet who would hear this cross-cultural call of God. It leaves us longing for one who would actually cross that border, who would actually draw near to those people. You see, the whole point of the book of Jonah is that it's telling us a story of ugly orthodoxy in order to lead us to the beautiful orthodoxy. It tells us about the ugly orthodoxy of one prophet to lead us to the beautiful orthodoxy of a greater prophet. And that prophet is Jesus. We get this story of Jonah who is so utterly for himself and his kind so that we can appreciate what it means for the greater prophet to be so utterly for the other and those who were not his kind. Because the beauty that is displayed in this text is the beauty of the gospel. Because when the call came to the Son of God, he went. And he crossed borders that were far more hostile, far more violent than any border that Jonah ever could have crossed. 
Jonah was concerned about crossing a religious border. He was concerned about crossing a cultural and ethnic border, about crossing a geographical border. But the Son of God crossed even greater borders. He crossed the border from heaven to earth. He crossed the border from the land of the living to the land of the dead. He crossed the border from from those who are righteous to those who are unrighteous. He crossed the border from from those who are holy to, to the land of those who are unholy. He crossed borders. And he ran with greater vigor and, and, and excitement toward the other than Jonah ever expressed running away from the other. The love of the son did not stop at the borders of his heavenly home. It actually extended to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here's the amazing thing. Here is the good news, y'all. When the son of God heard the call, he, he could have said, Father... Do you know who these people are? Father, do you know what these people have done? Do you know what they will do to me? Let's redeem them. I know who these people are. I know what they have done. I know what they are like, and I know what they will do to me. But I have come to do his will, not my will, but your will be done. And that's the beauty of cross-cultural love that brought up your life from the pit. It's the beauty of cross-cultural love that snatched you from the teeth of despair. It's the beauty of cross-cultural love that yanked the stinger out of death and slapped the neon vacancy sign on the tomb. It is the beauty of cross-cultural love that saved your life and brought you here. Now what are you going to do with that good news? What are you going to do with it? If that does not drive your life, nothing else really will. You see, it's not anger or shame or fear that is meant to drive us in these cross-cultural directions. It's the knowledge of the fact that it is cross-cultural love that brought me life. It is cross-cultural love that raised me up from the grave, that brought up my life from the pit. Cross-cultural love touched the untouchable. Cross-cultural love loved the unlovable. Cross-cultural love forgave the unforgivable. Cross-cultural love welcomed the undesirable. Cross-cultural love saved those who were otherwise unsavable. By grace alone. And that is our story. This is our narrative. This is our autobiography. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sins. This is our narrative. And when you know this is your narrative, when you are struck by the beauty of this God crossing the borders to love you, well then it it compels you to cross the borders to love others. It, it, It rewires the way you think, and you no longer use your orthodoxy to avoid the call to love. You use it to induce greater love for the other. That's That's what we're saying. This is why we're saying this is all about the gospel. This is not about being politically correct. Politics is not the origin of this vision. God is. 
If you don't see this in the gospel, Stevie Wonder can see this in the gospel. I love you, but you, if you don't see this in the gospel, just say, ask for help. <laughs> ask for help. It's all good. We all got blind spots. But part of beautiful orthodoxy is knowing and confessing that I can't see the way. And I need the communion of saints in order to begin to see some of these things that have, up to this point, remained invisible to me. Listen, here's the deal. Because Jesus crossed the border to us, he has not only the authority, but also the credibility to call us to do the same. There is no cost that Jesus did not pay in loving you. And it is that knowledge that is meant to to make you willing to pay whatever cost for the sake of loving the other. There's no sacrifice that he calls us to make in loving others that he did not make in loving us. It takes a border crossing God to produce a border crossing people. We're not just talking about getting different colored people in the room. That happens all over the place. We're talking about the life of love. Living together in love. Blessing one another. Serving one another. Knowing and befriending one another. If Jesus was known as being a friend of sinners, then guess what we ought to be? Friends of sinners. If Jesus was known as being a drunkard and a glutton... Well, I'm just... Well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, I'm going to practice tonight. You know? <laughs> Nah, but but the underlying message is that Jesus was around the shady people. He was around those people, right? This was the ministry and life of Jesus. It's by the power of his love and the beauty of that gospel that we are to grow up into this beautiful stature. So let me throw a few things at you to take away from this. First, run all your excuses for avoiding this call run them all to the gospel, and ask yourself, where would you be if Jesus had taken up that excuse? Yeah, but you know, we're just not alike. We're just so different. You know, it's not practical. I mean, I mean, can, can you imagine Jesus say, Father, we're just so different. I'm holy, they're not. I'm amazing, they're terrible. I'm great, they are jerks and losers. No. What are you going to say? It's, you know, Father, it's just not practical. You know? It's not practical. They're very inefficient to work with. They're a real pain in the, you know what, Father? You know, like, can you imagine Jesus? You, like, what the gospel does is it blows up all of your excuses for evading cross-cultural love. Run all your excuses to the gospel and allow them to be blown up. Second, focus more on who you're becoming than what you're doing. One of the things that we tend to do with all things cross-cultural is we try to do all the right things, and we're going to screw up. It's it's inevitable. We're going to make mistakes in this. But we all tend to focus on doing the right things and presenting the right optics instead of becoming the right kind of people. Becoming the kind, because listen, if you're focused on becoming the right kind of person, then you'll have the kind of wisdom that you need to navigate the gray. Focus on who you're becoming. Don't focus on optics first. 
Optics without substance, cross-cultural optics without cross-cultural substance, that's called tokenism. But if you have cross-cultural substance, you can be patient and wait for the cross-cultural optics. Okay? Third, I mean this in love. Don't let friendship with those who are doing cross-cultural ministry become your replacement for doing it yourself. Oh yeah, I love Erwin. That's my dog. Erwin is my mainest man. And he becomes the proxy for your own reluctance to engage it personally. Don't let your friendships with people who are doing cross-cultural work become your excuse not to do it. Or a substitute. Don't let that be. Share your desire for new obedience. Share it with a friend who will help to love you through your failures at doing it. They will, they will help you to rise up into this beautiful picture, this beautiful orthodoxy. They'll be the friend that stabs you in the front when you need it. You know, they say enemies stab you in the back, friends stab you in the front, right? We need to be about that proverb, right? The, the kisses of the enemy are like poison, but the wounds of a friend are faithful. We need some faithful friend wounds in this work. Here's the deal. God's work in redemption is to take the beauty of the indicatives and the clarity of the imperatives to drive away the ugliness in our souls. He wants to take the beauty of the imperatives of the gospel and the clarity the beauty of the indicatives, the clarity of the imperatives to drive away the ugliness of our souls. Who are you? Who is he? What has he done? He has done a work of cross-cultural rescue for his church. Let us be the kind of people that, that display this beauty, this beautiful orthodoxy, not only in our own individual lives, but as communities. Let the one who has ears hear. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for this stunning picture of grace. The way that you have loved us is so remarkable. The way that you have been so generous to us is, is beyond our ability to capture in words. But we are so grateful that we have this opportunity to, to give our lives in, in, in gratitude to show off the glory of the gospel in the way that we love other people. Lord, we pray that if we are in here tonight and we recognize that we have gone into the program to reduce the demands, that you would put your finger on it and you would help us to repent and believe and to change to grow up into the full stature of Christ together. Lord, I, I pray that you would bless us to see the fruit of this in the years to come in the PCA. Lord, would you double our number of people who represent the other in this denomination. Lord, would you help us to long for it and pray for it and work for it until your kingdom comes. We pray that our denomination would be a, a glimmer of that day that is to come 
where we will gather around the throne in doxological diversity, giving praise to the Lamb. We love you, and thank you that you loved us first, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.